Kevin Chu is one of those Silicon Valley founders you may have written off as just another rich guy. By age 38, he sold his first company for nearly a billion dollars. But he almost didn't make it because Facebook blocked his rise. They had all the negotiating power and we had zero. And what do we learn from that? If you come across an obstacle and you can't overcome it, it's much better to go around it. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Art of Power. I'm Arthi Shahani. Today, Kevin Chu, who could definitely be retired, is definitely not. He's on a mission to wrest power away from the handful of companies that seemingly own the internet. A gamer turned gaming mogul, he explains why he was initially reluctant to follow his childhood passion. We dissect how a screenshot of Elon Musk sold for $25,000 recently. Kevin had a big hand in that. And by the end of our chat, your brain may hurt a bit, but you will understand internet economics, and human nature like never before. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. My father grew up during the China Civil War. Mm. And I was told that my grandmother died. My grandmother, I learned later, went to be on the side of the Communist Party. Mm. And my grandfather was in the military for the KMT, the losing party of the Civil War. And it tore our family apart. Wow. They split over it. Yeah, they they ended up splitting over it. And my father and my aunt... They walked from the Hunan province all the way to Hong Kong and then took a boat to Taiwan. So they had nothing. They literally lost everything in the China Civil War and had to flee. The story of how Kevin Chu's family arrived in the U.S. is not an unusual one. After political unrest at home, his father came here for university. He went back to Taiwan, met his wife, married, and then migrated back to America. Kevin was born shortly thereafter and grew up in a small town outside Los Angeles. We came to the U.S. with just a couple thousand dollars. And so I, um, I learned a lot about a way of life that I never had to experience myself, but I could feel it viscerally from the way that my father described some of his childhood experiences and how different my childhood was from him. And I think he tried to give me a very different type of childhood because he had such an intense and hard childhood. He wanted to make things as easy for me as, as he can. So he put no pressure on me. I was always confused by the, the tiger parent, you know, book that came out. It's not like, Oh, I have so many friends who talk about, oh yeah, they had a tiger parent childhood. I had like, I had the opposite, which is I had, I like to call them my panda parents and I love them both dearly. So they didn't pressure you to go into banking or to go into Silicon Valley investment because you did all of these things that look like what the child of tiger parents would do. <laughs> right? No, my, my, in fact, my father told me don't get into engineering and software because 
the skills that you learn are so, you know, get outdated really fast and it's really hard to keep up. Amazing. Don't go into tech with your father's. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> Loving dad, maybe not industry forecaster. But <laughs> uh, are you going to commit, Kevin, on Art of Power to being a, a what you call a panda parent and not a tiger parent for your kids? <laughs> I commit to being a panda parent. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Kevin Chu defied his father's wishes and became a tech titan of sorts. He studied at the University of California, Berkeley, and this is his claim to fame and fortune. He founded Kabam. Welcome to Blast Zone, the greatest battle. Kabam makes mobile games, like a lot of them. Heroes of Camelot. Plenty of games you've heard of, like for the movie franchises Fast and Furious, Transformers, I am Optimus Prime, Hunger Games, Star Wars, Today the Empire is Victorious, and dozens of other games you maybe haven't heard of. Hello everybody, my name is Markiplier and welcome to Realm of the Mad God. Now this is a game that Matt, my editor, His company was valued at over a billion dollars, but it almost didn't happen. Rewind to 2006. Facebook was not available to the general public yet. It was only on college campuses. Kevin Chu wanted to create something like Facebook, only for people in the workforce. He got money from Silicon Valley investors. He began getting employees from companies like PricewaterhouseCooper, PwC, to use his social network at the office, without permission or basic security checks. The workers would connect to each other and invite people who claimed to be co-workers to events. They were going to meet up for drinks after work at this pub, you know, join if you're, you know, uh, a Cal fan or whatever. Um, but of course, PwC hated it. And they just ended up blocking the site. It basically shut, shut our whole business down. Was that really surprising for you, though? Because, like, well, did you kind of know that you were cutting corners around permission? <laughs> no. You know, I was 26 back then, and my co-founders were even younger than me. So we were you know, a 22-year-old, I think. I mean, we were all just out of college and had a few years of experience. Mm. Uh, and and so I didn't. we didn't think that what we were doing was... Like a massive security breach. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Okay. You know, Kevin... I'm interested in that story because of what happened right after. You find that you've basically lost the, let's say, 5,000 users that you've managed to mm -hmm. gain. Mm -hmm. And you're stuck. I mean, you're a little shit up a creek because you've got some money left from people who have invested in you. But your idea for what you're building, it doesn't work. We had spent six months uh, trying to make things work, and it was really sad. I felt I had convinced three other people to leave, you know, good jobs to start this this new company. And you know, back in two thousand six, it just wasn't a thing yet to to do a startup. Doing a startup was not cool, and there weren't you know unicorns in 
Silicon Valley stories on, on NPR, you know, back then mm-hmm. it was very, um, you know, you did it because you, you want to pursue a passion. You want to create something. You wanted to bring something to the world. And it just felt like that, that dream had come to an end. Mm-hmm. I spoke to one of your longtime investors, Maha Ibrahim. You connected me to her. And, and she recounted a very specific moment where she says you were on the verge of collapse. I'm going to play it for you, okay? We met for coffee in Mountain View, and he was just so stressed out. He, he doesn't smoke, but he was just smoking like crazy uh, cigarettes, and he couldn't find a way beyond where version 1.0 of Kabam was. And so that conversation was really about him needing to step back and assess the situation that he had. And also knowing me probably giving him comfort that he could make a complete right turn. (laughs) Do you remember that moment? I do remember that moment. Tell me about it. It just didn't, it didn't enter my mind at that point in time that I could do something that was not pursuing a sort of young professional social network. It's interesting how the stories we tell ourselves constrain what we give ourselves permission to do. Kevin Chu told himself, focus on yuppies. Young listeners, that's old school for young urban professionals. Kevin was a yuppie, though he also had another identity, gamer. I was an only child. Mm -hmm. It was a lonely childhood. And so I played a ton of games and Hmm. Uh, taught myself some basic coding, taught myself, you know, how to put a website up. And uh, it was all because I, I loved games so much. It was such a big part of my childhood. Gaming was becoming a big, no, a huge part of the internet. Gamers were some of the most active people online. Other startup founders who'd noticed that began making games on Facebook like Mob Wars, Pet Society, and of course, the massively popular Farmville. Kevin noticed, and he mustered up the courage to talk to his co-founders, who also happened to be gamers. And so we, we just decided that, hey, you know, what if we, instead of building something for young you know, professionals, why don't we you know, think about making something more in the gaming uh, sector? And so that, that's what we ended up doing. We we, we pursue something where we, we build something totally that had nothing to do with young professionals at all, but it was uh, for gamers. That's so interesting because basically it's like you picked the wrong core identity. <laughs> it's like, you know, <laughs> no, we all have multiple identities, right? Like at any given moment, you're many things. And you picked kind of the one that was like more of the suit. I'd say maybe a little more careful, a little more boring, <laughs> but it turns out the more fun one was the more strategic one as well. Yeah, we just thought, you know, we don't know what we're going to do next, but let's just do something that we thought would be really fun. And Maha gave us permission to do that. So I was so stressed about that meeting because I was trying to not tell her what was exactly on my mind because I was afraid of what she would say. That she'd freak out. That she would freak out and be like, WTF, what are you thinking? You know, we wrote your, you know, we invested in this, this initial idea. And it just turned out that she was, you know, when we finally got down to brass tacks, she was really supportive of it. Hmm. I sort of stressed myself out needlessly. Huh. 
So you basically went into it thinking, oh, my God, my investor is going to kill me. Yeah. <laughs> and so when did you realize you didn't have to hide? Well, so what happened was we had raised half a million dollars. And after six months, we, we had burned through half of it. And, and so I went to her and I said, we got this great team. We love working together. Hmm. Um, we know how to build things. Um, and we could try some new stuff. And here's a couple of the ideas. They're not fleshed out, but here's kind of the general idea set. And she said, she stopped me as I was trying to you know, figure out how to frame things probably in a really anxious way. <laughs> <laughs> and, and she said, Kevin, I don't want the money back. You don't need to explain to me. And it sounds like you don't have a full business plan just that anyway. It's, it's fine. Go, go figure out the next thing and go do it. Hmm. And that was, that was the entire meeting. <laughs> what did you learn from that? That that was her reaction, which was just so different from the fearful voice in your head. Yeah, of having hard conversations. I was scared of, of making people feel like the commitments I'd made to them weren't, weren't coming true. Mm. And, mm. and then realizing that really, no, the commitment was that we would all try together. And that if something didn't work out, we would you know, try again. And, and, and having overcome that for the first time, and it would not be the last time, definitely gave me confidence in the future whenever we hit big challenges. Kevin Chu made a pivot. His investor let him take the money that was left, a quarter million dollars, and keep at it because she believed in him. He and his team worked on making online games. They came up with one in particular that he absolutely loved, called Kingdoms of Camelot. But before putting it on Facebook for the world to enjoy, he gave it to friends and family to try out. He surveyed them. You know, I asked a bunch of questions. And then, of course, at the end, it was, would you play this game when we launch it? Mm -hmm. And let's call it 30 people. We literally had not a single person tell us they liked the game. Oh, and that wow. Every single person said they would not play this game when it launched. That's really bad. That's this really is our, these are our friends and family that we gave some pizza to. <laughs> I'm like, who are you surrounding yourself with? <laughs> it's like everyone's a hater. <laughs> so it was, a, it, was, it was very sad. We all went, we all looked at the feedback together. It was a very small team. Mm -hmm. I said, wow. You know, my co-founder asked me, he said, Kevin, should we just stop working on this right now? And I said, no, we're, we've, we spent so long building this thing and we're so close. So it's really kind of our, or Hail Mary pass to, to put something out there. And in the first day that we released the game, we had somebody pay $250 to play the game. Quick clarification, you could play Kingdoms of Camelot for totally free. But if you wanted to buy imaginary objects to bling out your imaginary castle or farm or army, that is what cost money. And that's what he says somebody on Facebook was willing to pay $250 to do. And we were, we were sitting there, we were scratching our head because we said, you know, why would somebody pay $250 to play a free game on Facebook? Wow. Huh. What'd that tell you? There's something here. 
we knew we had something in the first 24 hours. And and then the other thing, besides just pain, that we, we had a chat in the game. That was the other uh, innovation that we, we try to bring into the social game space. So we had a real-time chat in the game. And the real-time chat was just blowing up. People were like, they were just chatting about sports. They were chatting about the weather. They were chatting about politics, whatever it was. They were just People were hanging out and they were playing the game. Hmm. And some people were paying for it. And so we said, wow, this is working. And so was the difference between what you were seeing happening on Facebook versus the feedback you got from your family and friends. Was the mm-hmm. difference that on Facebook, people could also hang out with each other at the same time. And so it became more of like a collective experience. Yeah, that's right. I, I think that was the most powerful thing about the game. People uh, wanted to connect with other like-minded people. And mm-hmm. so the conversations that would happen in the game were if I had a guess, you know, maybe 20, 25% of it was about the game itself. And then the other 75% was about life, about what people are doing. And to be fair, when we, you know, this game eventually grew to, uh, I believe, 10 million users or so, we, we had a lot of users fall out. The strategy game, we would put 100 people into the game and only 10 people would actually really like the thing. And then maybe five people really, really liked but it was enough. Mm. And so that's a third lesson is not just hanging out to chat with each other, but it was really ultimately a far smaller select cohort, but they were very dedicated to being there. Yeah. And I think that's that's what I'm seeing in the internet today. And it started, I think, with that insight back mm. then, which is that niches matter. Niches matter and people are very you know, increasingly able to find the exact group of people that share a very particular passion or interest and so in, in the gaming sense, it is that the game itself, right? Mm-hmm. The type of people that would play Kingdoms of Camelot was not, it was, it was a niche. Mm-hmm. But that niche had common interest. And if you were like me and you grew up in a small town of about 10,000 people, there may not be other people in your school or your college that enjoy you know, playing strategy games, but you could find that community online. And not only could you play that game, it wasn't just the game anymore. It was this community. And, and that was really powerful. Kevin Chu had an insight about the internet and human nature about five to ten years before the rest of us. He realized digital community is real community. A lot of commentators mocked the enthusiasm of people online. Kevin was like, laugh all you want. I can see online relationships satisfy our primordial need for human connection. That person spending 250 bucks, they wanted to make their kingdom look nice for other people on the game. The gamers in chat, they wanted to make friends. And it didn't bug Kevin that these early adopters were kind of quirky. So this is the Kingdoms of Camelot application for the iPhone and iPad. It is really fun to play and I recommend you check it out. So anyways, let's go ahead and take a look at this game. He embraced his niche. And in fact, I think it's way easier. It's it's so much easier to know that you have a very specific audience that want a very specific thing, and you know how to provide that thing. Now let's talk about big tech, Facebook specifically. Kevin Chu learned early that Facebook has a whole lot of power maybe too much. When he published his first game there, Facebook did not charge him anything. It was free. 
But one day, the company announced, actually, we're going to take 30% of your profit. Kevin was blindsided. They're being a greedy landlord, he thought. He drove down to Facebook's corporate headquarters to talk it out. And we went to them and we showed them the models and we showed them, we, we opened up our, our numbers and all of our income statements and so forth. We said, look, this is our business. It's, we're going to be an open slate with you because we think what you're doing is going to crush our business and a bunch of other businesses uh, similarly. And we, we walked them through, here's how much we spend on ads. Here's how much we make. And they just sort of shrugged their shoulders and, and said, well, that's too bad for you. Hmm. And, and it was, it was sort of, they had all the negotiating power and we had zero you know, back then. And what do we learn from that? Uh, you're personally or professionally? Both. Well, especially personally. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, so I think from a business standpoint, I had thought that there's no way Facebook will actually do this because once we, and then we encourage a bunch of other companies to do the same thing, go to Facebook and show them all of our numbers that Facebook will say, Oh, hmm, yeah, let's, let's rethink this. Um, I thought that's what they were going to do. What, what I thought would be a reasonable conversation turned out to be just completely lopsided because the other company was so powerful. Hmm. So I learned that. I learned personally, and I, I've, all, you know, I've always had a little bit of this um, philosophy in life, which was if you come across an obstacle and you can't overcome it, it's much better to go around it. Hmm. And, and so after I walked out of that conversation with Facebook, I, the first thing in my mind was we can't stay on Facebook. It doesn't matter that we built all of our business here. It's a, it was it used to be a fantastic business. It's not going to be a fantastic business anymore. And they don't, they they just don't care. Um, yeah, it crossed my mind. Do I try to sue them? Do we try to do mm -hmm. all these? Because mm -hmm. they they were changing things. And you're one of many entrepreneurs who wanted to sue them. Okay. That's <laughs> yeah. so that's not going to work. We're 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 just going to to figure out how to build our business elsewhere. Interesting. You thought your investor was not going to understand you, but she did. You thought Facebook was going to understand you. They didn't. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm like, do you know who to trust, Kevin? How's your intuition on that? <laughs> <laughs> not good. Over to two. <laughs> After the break, Kevin Chu, who had a huge success and a smackdown on Facebook, manages to make bank. Now, he's not retired. He's using his newfound power to take on big tech. You do not need to work again. You are filthy rich man, right? Can I say that to a filthy rich person? <laughs> I, 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 I have financial freedom. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Art of Power. I'm Arthi Shahani. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Kevin Chu got lucky with timing. I think everyone needs a little bit of luck. 
any successful person, if, if you can't admit that there's a lot of things that were totally outside of your control. At the exact same time that Facebook was being a greedy landlord, two other giants came on the scene. Kevin could publish his games in stores run by Google and Apple. Sometimes when giants compete, little guys win. That's what happened in Kevin's case. He made hit game after hit game. And then your first company, Kabam, you sell it. It's actually three different sales, but you sell it for about a billion dollars. You do not need to work again. You are filthy rich man, right? Like you become rich. Is that correct? Can I say that to a filthy rich person? <laughs> Is that fair? I, 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 I have financial freedom. Yes. Okay. You don't have to work, but you cannot stop working. I mean, you sell that company and like three to six months later, you're into your next one. And I'm like, why? <laughs> I thought after selling Kabam, because I had worked so hard for 11 years, that I told my wife, I said, I'm going to take a year off. I need at least a year to, to recharge. And after three months, I got bored. I felt that I really missed building something. And I, I, would, I would definitely classify myself as somebody who just innately wants to create. It's, it's probably why I, I, I love this term of creators. Hmm. I felt it. I felt like I, I want to build something. I want to feel like I'm making a positive impact. And I, I, I looked in the mirror one morning and I said, do I want to just give money to charitable causes and, and pursue uh, some board rules? And I, I uh, joined the board of the board of trustees for UC Berkeley. You I, gave them $25 million. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I thought that was what I was going to do mm -hmm. with my life. And I looked at myself in the mirror that day and I said, no, I, if I, if that's what I do for the rest of my life, I don't think I would be happy with the impact, nor am I happy with the day to day. And would you say it was kind of like the sense of unfinished business? Cause like what you just described, that sounds pretty awesome to me. <laughs> if I could spend all of my time supporting charitable causes and being on boards, I mean that you meet so many interesting people, you know, you're still doing God's work. You're educating people. Mm -hmm. You know, you've, you've built a building at Berkeley. It's got your wife's and your name on it. You know, I'm just saying it doesn't sound that bad. <laughs> And it's not bad at all. And I, I, but I did not feel like I was, it, it just felt unfulfilled with my life at that point. I left Kabam and I felt like I had done everything that I wanted to do. Every game I wanted to build, I actually, you know, I, I built it. So I don't feel like there was anything unfinished about Kabam itself, but I felt like I, I, I wanted to build something new again. I have a theory. Kevin Chu says he loves creating, but I think he had unfinished business. He experienced the power of big tech to completely kill friend or foe alike. It almost happened to him. He survived, and then he noticed there's a new movement in technology, a movement in what's called 
cryptocurrency. Steve and Dave use eToro to trade cryptocurrencies. Digital binaries, or should I say cryptocurrency. We've got a Bitcoin alert, the cryptocurrency crashing again right now. This movement, it has the potential to give back power to creators, podcasters, musicians, furniture makers, acupuncturists, you name it. We are creators. Hello, guys. This is a commercial for Kevin's crypto startup, Rally. We make these platforms, and we owe it all to our amazing fans. Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, Spotify, YouTube, they rely on us to make content, post videos, our work to build a fan base or customer base. It helps the platforms stay relevant. But just by tweaking an algorithm, these platforms can obliterate the business you have worked so hard to build there. It's not just that we're getting squeezed. We have no control. So building on crypto is incredibly liberating because I'm not worried about a Facebook and Apple and Google or, or some other big tech company changing the rules for their own benefit. And, and that to me is one of the most powerful things that is going on. And it was what attracted me to this space in the, in the early days. Kevin Chu is among the first to make it possible for creators to use cryptocurrency. Rally, his company, lets a creator issue their own digital coin, like I could make an Arthi coin. What does that accomplish? Well, you can keep going to Facebook or Instagram or TikTok to find a following, and then you can invite that following into your community, your economy. It's creative control. Kevin and I dissect a high-profile example of how this works. Elon Musk goes on another podcast, the Joe Rogan podcast, and Musk smokes weed while he's there. So is that a joint? Okay, he's got like a blunt. <laughs> yep. Okay. So it's like posh, pot, tobacco, yeah. posh. You never had that? Yeah, I think I tried one once. Come on, man. <laughs> you probably can't because stockholders, right? I mean, it's legal, right? It's totally legal. Okay. And people are watching the podcast because it's streamed online. People are grabbing screenshots of what they see. But a handful of users take a select group of screenshots. They call it the Stoned Elon series. So it's, you know, an artistic creation. <laughs> mm -hmm. And they sell it on your platform, Rally, they sell it for $25,000 worth of Rally tokens. Yeah. Explain that. <laughs> There's a lot of unpack there. Yeah. There's an art community. They come and they find Rally and they say, we're an art collective and we're based all over the world. We want to create a cryptocurrency that we can use as a community and we could pay each other. We could pay for supplies because not only is it a cryptocurrency, but cryptocurrencies, when they're useful, they can always be exchanged for US dollars or euros or whatever. It's almost like emailing money without any cost for transaction. Right. That's exactly right. right. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so how did they take some screenshots and how did that get converted to $25,000 in value? So the art community, they thought that was such a seminal moment in, in culture, in technology. And they wanted to create this series about stoned Elon. And they each 
have their own take of what a rendering of that screenshot would mean to them. And so we have everything from very abstract to very realistic to evil Elon to angel Elon. I mean, it's just all sorts of different takes on that screenshot. Mm. In a physical world, that artist would have used oil and canvas maybe and, and painted you know, a picture. And then it's very clear in the physical world, we as humans know that if you own that piece of canvas and you rightfully paid for it, you, you own it. In the digital world, there's no, there isn't anything like that. Things can be copied. They could be pirated. You have no idea if they're the original. Exactly. And there, there's not even a concept of original. Whatever original digital image, you know, it is like, you know, Google will create its own image or whatever. Okay. So to recap, this is heady stuff. Artists connected on the internet want to have an art auction. The highest bidder at the auction would pay with cryptocurrency, specifically coins issued by Rally, Kevin's company. Those coins can be converted into dollars, dinar, rupees, yuan, whatever. And the buyer knows they are getting the original image because a technology called blockchain marks the print as original and keeps track of who owns it. You can see who owns it at any given point in time, and there's only one of them. Or you can create 10 to start or whatever you want, but you know how many there are and who owns them at any given second of the day. Mm-hmm. And I, I sell it to you, Arthur. Mm-hmm. You now own it. Everyone will see that you own mm-hmm. it. Um, and that it's public. Right. Mm-hmm. You really own it, mm-hmm. and nobody can take it away from I you. I see. And so just one more thing about the art collection. Like, what's the appeal of owning the very original digital print versus just taking a screenshot of it, same pixelation mm. or, or copying it, whatever. Like, wh- why does someone care about owning the original? Because when it's a when it's paint on canvas, I can't actually make an exact replica of the original. But when it's digital, I can. Mm-hmm. Let's let's take a look at culture. There's certain types of cars where they make only a limited edition, and people who collect cars really know mm-hmm. that those cars are. You could go buy yes a Toyota Camry, mm-hmm. but you can also buy that rare, you know, La Ferrari that there's only X number of them, mm-hmm. and that there's there's that there's there's examples in apparel. So we see that in a digital world, and that's what's what that's what's happening in digital right now is that people who know and care about going back to niches. That original piece of work that that's done and authenticated by that artist, there's enough people who care about that thing to give that thing the value that's being expressed in the marketplace right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a collectible, just like it would be in the physical world. They're not hindered by the mm-hmm. fact that it's just imaginary or in the digital. And it, it's a it's a real transaction because that that creator, if you just like this podcast, you create this podcast. Mm-hmm. And I, I believe this will happen over time mm-hmm. um, where you create a piece of media mm-hmm. like a podcast mm-hmm. and somebody, a patron who really cares about the work that you're doing is going to say, you know what? I'm willing to buy this podcast for $10,000. Mm-hmm. And, and what does it even give them? Mm-hmm. Because anybody can listen to the podcast. You're probably going to you go, know, it's NPR, it's WBEZ. Anybody can listen to the podcast, mm-hmm. but there's maybe one person who really who owns the the original mint, you know, of that podcast mm. and is always associated with being 
a, a patron, a supporter of this show. You know, Kevin, you must be a mind reader because that's exactly where I wanted to go next. And last, <laughs> I wanted you to convince me to bring digital currency into Art of Power. Explain. <laughs> no, give me the sales pitch, man. And now you got to talk to me in a way I can understand, right? Like, <laughs> I'm now turning this into a consulting session. Okay, Kevin. So, like, <laughs> how would this work? Try to onboard me. Try to convince me I want to be part of this. Mm -hmm. So, what we would help you do is you would you would take Art of Power and you would turn it into an economy, and that economy would have, you know, let's say, a power token. And then you would have various different NFTs that you can mint for patrons. NFT, non-fungible token, like one of those artistic Elon Musk screenshots. You could turn each podcast into a unique NFT, or you could say that there's 10 NFTs associated with each podcast. Mm. And then you can allow your, your super fans to publicly support Art of Power and be recognized for their support. And mm. the other thing that will happen is that the, you know, what you can do is you can say, thank you for listening. When you listen to an episode of Art of Power, you earn, you know, one power token. Mm -hmm. And so you can have a, really a multifaceted economy where you're basically saying, you know, we're going to release this power token. And people who are listening, who are supporting, just for listening and supporting you, you earn one token. And this will happen for the first million listens. So first you give them for free and then you start selling them. Yeah, and they're, they're different parts of the economy. Just like for the everyday listener, they feel like they're being rewarded. They're earning uh -huh. something just for listening. And then there's a small group of people that could have the ability to pay $10,000, $50,000. And you wow. give them a reason to pay that amount of money and be recognized for it in the community. Mm -hmm. And people will care about it. It's, it's that community that people... People won't pay $50,000 for an NFT if there isn't a community that cares mm. about it. Like, let's say, you know, five, 500,000 people earn a token for listening to Art of Power and they're all excited about it and they're, they're tipping each other because there, there, there may be some people that uh, will help you moderate a forum or something. And so, so they'd have to find each other. We'd have to have a forum going alongside these tokens we're giving out. Yeah, we, we always, okay. exactly. So we generally recommend creating some very... They're using an off-the-shelf, you know, whether it be Reddit or Discord or, you know, forum, you know, software. You know, you create a place where people can connect with each other. Um, and I think that's just a good thing to do regardless. And then you create a token that the community earns and uses. And some mega patrons will want to really show that they care about this. I see. And they, they, they become a known patron. And so basically the free tokens help the community members to self-identify as such and start rewarding each other. Like, hey, I'll give you my token or I'll give you part of my token for mm -hmm. for some comment you made in the chat room that I enjoyed. Right. Or somebody really eliminating some trolls or, you know, mm. or, or, or <clears throat> you know, I don't know if this happens, but maybe like somebody identifies and says, hey, maybe you should bring on so-and-so to the show. Oh, that's it, true. It, that becomes a great idea. Yeah. Like somebody, you know. Because right now I get on Instagram, I get people giving me guest ideas. So then start rewarding right. them for it. Right. I see. Or they actually help bring that person onto the show mm. uh, because they're hard to get maybe. Mm -hmm. and, and so Kevin, is your sense that we're using the example of Art of Power, that there are all of these 
podcasters, myself included out there, other content creators, other media makers too. Is your sense that Art of Power is leaving a lot of power on the table? Absolutely. The, the, mm. the, I think, especially with the, the type of people that you're having on the show, not me, but you know, other folks that are on the show. Can include yourself. There's, there's, mm. <laughs> there's real, the work that people are doing that you're bringing, that you're having in conversations with, I think there's a whole community of people that want to engage with each other over the content of your show. Hmm. And you just, your job is to be the catalyst and bring that community together and enable that community. Hmm. Turn that into a power lesson, Kevin. The thing, Arthur, you need to understand is. Arthur, I think the thing you need to understand about your listeners is that creating a town square, a digital town square for them to interact with each other will unlock a lot of power that this, uh, this program has. And that's not being tapped into today. Hmm. Thanks for the consulting session. <laughs> <laughs> My lessons from Kevin Chu. One, embrace your niche. When a group of people go crazy for you and you're feeling them too, honor that relationship. The passion of a small, dedicated group is infectious. Two, own the economics of your community. Don't leave it to big tech companies to make all the money. Three, when you're a little guy up against someone with way more power, don't try to take them head on. Look around corners, run around giants. And as you may have guessed, Art of Power listeners, we're not just going to leave it at that. I have an announcement. Drum roll. <laughs> we are going to turn an episode of this podcast into an NFT, non-fungible token. That's right. The first NFT ever in the public radio universe, maybe the podcast universe. We will be conducting our auction shortly. If you want to get in on it, message me on Twitter or Instagram, arthi411, A-A-R-T-I-411. Love you. This episode of Art of Power was produced by Justin Bull, Hina Srivastava, and me, Arthi Shahani. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. If this episode landed for you, broke your brain, moved your heart, hit subscribe. Leave us a written review on Apple Podcasts. They really matter. Tell your friends and family. Your referrals keep us going. Let me know what you think. Text me, 917-708-5139. And again, on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Arthi411. See you next week. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.